want to invite you to have a seat. As you do, I want to dismiss Hubtown Kids this morning. Hubtown Kids are not going to be learning anything new. Of course, not new at all. There's nothing new under the sun. And furthermore, they've already covered the topics that we're learning, that they'll be teach, uh, taught this morning. But they are going to be reviewing over three aspects of God, three of His characteristics. One is that He is all-powerful, two, that He is everywhere, and three, that He is sovereign, that He's sovereign. That's Hubtown Kids, the great exodus. <laughs> she wants to stay in here with us. You, you, you all understand. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to do another passage, another look. She's had a change of heart. You know what they say about pastor's kids. I can say that now. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at three verses this morning, 29, 30, and 31. If you, have, uh, if you don't have your copy of God's Word, feel free to grab the hard black Bible in front of you. And uh, our text this morning will be on page 1196. I think it's helpful if you hold it in your hands. If not, you can at least see it on the screen. Before we actually look at this text, I, I just want to recount for you briefly, not in any in, in depth at all, but I want to recount for you the story of the conquest of Jericho. A lot of times we think of these kinds of stories and we think, well, that was fun whenever we were children to hear about that and, and maybe even to enact it. I remember doing that as a kid. We stacked up chairs in Sunday school and when we had gotten done the, the seventh time on the seventh day, we kicked the chairs and the whole thing collapsed. But that's not exactly how it happened, is it? And that story is helpful when we're children, but it's also helpful for us as adults. The children of Israel were instructed as they executed the conquest of the land, as they captured the promised land. They came to Jericho. They were told for six days they were to walk around Jericho one time each day. So Monday comes around. What do they do? They walk around. Tuesday comes around, they get all their armor on, their trumpets and everything, their banners, and they walk around one time, and then they go back home. Maybe they're being mocked at, maybe they're, maybe they're sweating, we don't know. This happens day in, day out, six times in a row on the seventh day. We know the city's not too large because the, this entire army is able to walk around it seven times. Regardless of the size, it might have felt redundant and tiresome. And at the end of their seventh trip around, what do they do? They blow their horns. And we all know that when you're trying to tear down the walls, when you're trying to, to break through a fortress, the most effective thing that you can do is to blow a trumpet, right? Well, that's ridiculous. No. Nobody in the history of mankind has ever relied on trumpets to, to break through fortresses. But in this day, they did. Why? Because that's what God had told them to do. By faith... The scriptures say they conquered Jericho and the walls fell. It's really interesting that this story is coming in this lineup of Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith. It's so similar, this story, to the crossing of the Red Sea. Literally, there's nothing that the Israelites did as they escaped Egypt 
and that army crossed on dry land. There's nothing that they did, really, except for walk. Nothing they did around Jericho except for walk. And yet they're still victorious in both battles. Both there as they escaped Egypt, the Egyptian army destroyed totally. And as well as Jericho, totally destroyed. But how did they do that? How did they conquer? Well, the scriptures tell us. We've got our Bibles open. It's on the screen. Let's look at it. It says, by faith. We've heard that before several times. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And here's a third by faith. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. A little bit of walking, a little bit of walking and trumpet blowing, and a little bit of hospitality. And look what's taking place. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we know there's more to defeating armies than walking or blowing trumpets. We know there's more to being grafted into your family and receiving your promises than just being kind to strangers. Father, would you allow us to see this morning a little more of the kingdom Would we understand what it is that you have called us to accomplish, and that by faith? Thank you for this testimony. Thank you for these stories. Thank you for the encouragement. Father, we pray that we would grow in these areas, that our trust and faith, our confidence in you, and in the completed work of the Son on the cross, that that would be increased today. We ask it now in his name. Amen. And so how were these things accomplished? How did walls fall? How was a sea parted? Well, it was accomplished by faith in God. It was accomplished by faith in God. God is actively saving his people, and he's calling his people to passively trust in him. Passively in the sense that they're not to go and to do something. They're just to believe that God will sustain them. That God will give them the victory. There's not much more that we need to add. And yet at the same time, these verses were added to this passage, to this lineup for a reason. And so we would do well to ask, why are these verses here specifically? The overall point of this passage is is to call Christians who have become weary in doing good, who have become weary in actively resting in God, even though the circumstances that they're facing seem as though he may have abandoned them and potentially failed them. And then we have these three verses that are on top of all the other reminders to don't give up, to don't lose heart, to continue to have faith. We have these three verses. And they're telling us something, that those who have faith in God will be victorious. But there's a contrast here. There's another side of the coin. What's the other side of the coin here? It's that those who do not have faith in God, they don't fare as well. 
We notice in this passage that the Egyptians, the army was decimated. And they presumed, they didn't live by faith, they presumed upon their circumstances. And they were destroyed. And similar with Jericho, they presumed upon the strength of their fortress. A key verse to understanding the point of the text this morning is actually just a few verses back. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Look back at that. If you're using the hard black Bible, you can just turn back one page. Verse 6, right underneath that large 11. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't please God if you don't have faith in him. What does it mean to have faith in God? We've, we've covered this almost ad nauseum, but we're going to do it one more time. Faith is not just believing that God exists. Faith is believing God. What has God said? So many people believe in God. They don't believe what God has said. It doesn't look as though those who lived in Jericho really believed in either one of those, at least not most of them. Quickly, if you're, if you're fast with your fingers there and you can move to Joshua, or if you just want to write this down, Joshua 2.9, it'll be on the screen for you. Joshua 2.9 the, this is the account, this is a little bit of the recording of Rahab, the prostitute there in Jericho, living in the walls, her home there in the walls of Jericho, speaking to two spies that Joshua had sent into that city to spy it out, to get intel on. This is what she says to them. I know that the Lord has given you the land. What does the Lord mean? Well, I think... One of our pastors recently helped us to understand Lord and capital L-O-R-D is the name for God. The Israelite name for God, God Yahweh. She's saying this, this prostitute is saying, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. He's given you the land. He's given you this fortress. He's given you my house that I'm living in right now. I know that. And I know that the fear of you Israelites has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. That was both submission and prophecy there, that everybody would melt before them. What do we see when we compare the statement of Rahab and the definition of faith or, and then the circumstances of those without faith, we notice that Rahab had it But Jericho did not. Jericho did not believe that Yahweh existed. Neither did they believe that he was a rewarder of them who diligently sought him. Not only is that true of Jericho, but we know that's true of the Egyptians as well. Again, if you're taking notes, you can look at or jot down Exodus 9, verse 1. Exodus 9, 1. A little bit of the backstory of that exodus, God, 
Yahweh comes to Moses and says, hey, you're, you're going to deliver my people. I'm going to send you back to Egypt. You're going to rescue all of my people that have been turned into slaves. You're going to bring them into the promised land, which if we fast forward, when they actually get into the promised land, they go and conquer Jericho. But before any of that happens, before they are able to actually leave Egypt, God says to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him this. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Do you see the, the, the components here? Do you see them? We saw them with, with Jericho. We, we see them in, in Hebrews 11.6, and now we see them in Exodus 9.1. This is God introducing himself. And by the way, this, is, this verse is God telling Moses, go and tell Pharaoh. And we know, because a couple of verses later it records it, that Moses goes and tells him just this. I'm going to introduce somebody to you. His name is the Lord God. He's the God of the Hebrews. That's who he is. Do you believe that he exists? If you do, here's what you should do. You should obey what he has said, and what he has said is that you are to let his people go. Oh, I didn't realize I had his people. Yes, indeed, Pharaoh. You have Yahweh's people, and he's demanding that you release them so that they can go and serve him in the wilderness. What do we see taking place, place both in Joshua and in Exodus? We see that they didn't listen. Why? Well, they don't have faith. They don't believe in God revealed. They don't believe in the testimonies. They don't believe in his commands, and they reject them. Vice versa, although the Israelites weren't perfect, and although Rahab wasn't perfect, they did, in fact, believe that God existed and that he was a rewarder of them who obeyed him and sought him. Here's the main idea as we think of those two groups of people the path of faith is difficult, but the path of unbelief is much harder. The path of faith is difficult, but the path of unbelief is much harder. Maybe you're discouraged here this morning. I don't know where you're at. Geographically, I have a good idea. Spiritually, emotionally, I'm not sure where you're at. Maybe you're precisely where many of the Hebrews were in that first century. The Christians that received this letter, discouraged, thinking to turn away, and maybe not even to actively turn away, but just to become dormant in their faith and not to be as active as they had in the past. If that's you here this morning, I want to give you three encouragements from this passage and really from the greater of scripture here, I want to tell you this morning that you can be encouraged, and I'm going to give you three reasons why. The first one is this. The difficulty that you experience is not condemnation. Now, I'm speaking to Christians this morning. I'm, I'm speaking to those who have placed their faith in God's provision for them, and that provision is Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus then the difficulty that you experience in your life, be it physical, financial, spiritual, or whatever, it is not for the purpose of condemnation. It's not for the purpose of God pushing you away. It's not for the purpose of God sending you to utter darkness or even to bring despair into your life. That's quite 
the opposite of the purpose of what God is accomplishing in your life through the difficulty that you face. And yet the path of unbelief, it looks so much, that path of disobedience, it it looks so much like the path of faith because on both paths we often experience pain. The Christian who's placed their faith in God, looks across the aisle or looks across the street and and sees somebody who has rejected God and might see in that moment that this person's life seems to be so happy. Things seem to be going well. Maybe even they're carefree. And you look at your own life and you think, this is so challenging. This is so difficult. I'm so confused. I, I feel like as if I'm suffering. And in that moment, you're tempted to think that God has condemned you, that he's rejected you. And maybe you've even received that sort of counsel. Maybe you have friends like our brother Job, who as he suffered, had friends gather around, give typical sound, conventional wisdom. They offer it to him, well, surely you've done something wrong that that God would allow all these things to happen to you. And yet they were wrong. The scriptures tell us that both before and after, the reason he had suffered was not because of his sin. There was some other purpose. There was some other meaning. What about the Apostle Paul? You know the story. Very early on as we're introduced to this dynamic figure, we, we hear of him being knocked off his horse as he's going to, to do this thing that he thinks God is calling him to do. And he's there blinded, bright light in his eyes, knocked off his horse. He hears the words of Jesus Christ, our Lord, declare to him, why are you kicking against the pricks? Jesus is saying, I'm leading you somewhere, and this whole time that I'm leading you, you're kicking like like a mule would, like a cow would. You're fighting. You're hurting yourself. This is before he had faith in in Jesus' finished work. And in this moment, his mind is totally changed. God works in his life and transforms this brother, this man who had a great education. He had a great reputation. He had a bright, bright future. And then after he's knocked off of his horse, things turn in that moment. God opens his eyes. And as you visit back with Paul some years later, you might think, well, After he's kicked against the pricks a few times here, now he's done, that's behind him, now he's following Jesus fully, I bet his life's much easier now. And that's not what we see at all. We see throughout the book of Acts and even through the epistles of all of the things that the Apostle Paul suffered. And you think, well, maybe he's being condemned Maybe God is casting him off and he's not really the apostle that, that God originally wanted him to be. And that's, that's not true at all. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we have this great declaration that so many of us hold to on a daily basis. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we verbalize it or not, it's this hope and promise that for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. The Apostle Paul is saying, you might think that I've been rejected by God because of all the things that I've suffered, but the fact is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation. If you're here this morning and you're, you're discouraged, 
Again, maybe you're not ready to throw in the faith towel, but you're just tired of moving forward. Is it maybe potentially, at least in part, because you are equating the suffering and the difficulties and the pain that you've faced as of late with God's rejection of you or condemnation? If that's you, hear the words that we read a moment ago of Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. The Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. And so we know that the difficulty that we experience, it's not because of condemnation, but there's another encouragement here for us this morning. And that is the difficulty that you experience is accomplishing something. The, di- the difficulty that you experience is accomplishing something. You think about what the Israelites faced. The reproach of Christ we saw that Moses was willing to endure two weeks ago. Think of the reproach of Christ here in a sense as the Israelites walked around Jericho. Feet getting tired. Tired of being mocked, laughed at. Tired of not seeing the way, wondering when God's going to give them the victory. Imagine always being that close to your enemy and never seeing a real decisive victory day in, day out, at any moment you could be destroyed. What is that accomplishing? What is the purpose of that? Has God abandoned them with some silly list of things to do? And imagine, we've covered this before, but imagine being an Israelite and not just going on some sort of a tour of that sea, in the depths of that sea, but imagine holding everything that you have, your children, the hand of your bride, and that sounds romantic, but maybe even you're, you're carrying along your grandmother or your great-grandmother. You're in the heart of the sea, passing through in obedience to God, thinking, if these walls, whatever's happening right here, right now, if that stops, I'll be completely destroyed. There's literally no hope for me aside from God's miraculous providence here in my life. And you think, what, what is he accomplishing? What, what is it doing? Maybe nothing. Again, maybe he's just rejected me and he's led me into the bottom of the ocean to be swallowed up. Well, the difficulty that you experience, our second point of encouragement is that the difficulty you experience is accomplishing something. Every single thing that you face in this life, be it a blessing, obvious, or a blessing in disguise, is God working something in your life and accomplishing something, either for his glory or for your good. Think of John chapter 9. They gather around Jesus and they they ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, you see this blind guy? Settle settle a bit. Settle Settle a debate here for us. Jesus, who sinned? Was it this guy? Was it his parents? Was it his great-grandparents? Who, who sinned? Why would this happen? Why would, why would God, and they're speaking to God, why would God allow this to happen? Obviously, somebody has sinned, and what does Jesus say? No, 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 no. Nobody has sinned to cause this directly, but God's going to be glorified through this. God's going to be glorified in the lives of many, many people this day because this dude has suffered, and I'm going to deliver him before everybody. And so God does that. 
The difficulty that you experience in your life on a daily basis, even this morning as you tried to get dressed physically, you, it was difficult or emotionally and relationally just a struggle for you to get here this morning. You say, what is God doing for me? I've, I, my faith is in him. What is he doing? What's he accomplishing? Well, he's doing something, and ultimately he will be bringing glory to himself. And more specifically, he's bringing good and blessing for you, as only God can do. There's a thousand ways that God blesses us through our difficulties, and so many of us can testify to that. Before we went through that valley, we weren't really sure how strong God was. We weren't really sure how good God was. We weren't really sure how faithful. We had heard him say it before, but the depths of the valleys allow us to see just how great he is. But it's not just those things. It's also in discipline. Discipline is never fun. And yet for the Christian, discipline is always a blessing. It's always a blessing. I won't pre-preach that sermon, but here in just a few weeks, and I'm so excited for us to look at it, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. Let's just read that. Look over back. If you, if you turned back to 1195, turn back over to 1196, Hebrews 12. Verses 5 and 7. Scripture says, and, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Have you, have you forgot that? What is, what is that exhortation? What is that command and teaching? What is it calling you to do? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Friends, it's not condemnation that often brings about difficulties in our lives. It is the discipline of the Lord. It's the shaping of the Lord in your life. And he uses pain. He uses correction. I'm not sure how much you know of the life of David. David's one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read the story of David doing things he should not have done, transgressing the commandments of God. He's tempted. And in his temptation, what does he do? He gives into it. He sees Bathsheba. He takes her as if he is her her, her as if he is his wife, or she is his wife. Circumstances unfold, the story goes on, and he doesn't seem a way out to be held guiltless, and so to cover his sin, he has Bathsheba's husband killed. That's all in chapter 11. It's a fascinating story filled with pain, sadness, depravity. That's chapter 11. Chapter 12, it's a very powerful story goes on, David believes probably that he's gotten away with his sin, and yet God sends the prophet Nathan to come to him, and Nathan cleverly confronts David. David sees his own sin, and, and as a result of his sin, God's grace, God's discipline to him, he pens probably one of the most famous psalms ever written, Psalm 51 begging God for forgiveness, begging to be cleansed, begging to be used by God. 
repenting of the sin that he believes is mainly, chiefly against God and not against man. That's chapter 12, verse thir- or chapter 13, what happens there. Well, in our minds, we might think, well, these are two different stories. These are, these are not really related, but the storyteller is telling a historical fact, but the way that he sews it together leads us to believe that what happened with Bathsheba, what happened with Uriah, what happened with Nathan comes and flows right into chapter 13 when one of David's sons rapes his sister, half-sister. The sins that David had committed outside of the family, in a sense, have now crept into the family. And the sins that David has committed are being committed by his own sons, those whom he loves and trusts. In response in chapter 13 to Amnon's great sin, Absalom, ever the the righteous and just one, said sarcastically, executes revenge against Amnon, has him murdered. Absalom runs away. That is the end of chapter 13. And we see that what's happened in David's life in chapter 11 and 12, the chickens sort of come home to roost as his son leaves and one is dead. But then chapter 14 comes along and Absalom is restored. And chapter 15 comes along and Absalom revolts. Starts a coup and tries to kill his own father and have him run off. He tries to take and tear the kingdom out of David's hand. As we consider these texts, we consider this story, consider this idea, is this God's condemnation allowing these sorts of things to happen? No, here's what we know. The scriptures tell us that the way of the transgressor is hard. The one who kicks against the pricks is, is, gonna, is gonna get a bloody knee. And this is what's happened with David. He's rebelled against God. He's gone another way. He's not lived by faith in this moment. And what does God do? He disciplines him. And in David's brokenness, as he runs away, he pens Psalm 3. You should read that this week. It'd be a great psalm to consider. David doesn't come away from the discipline that he's received, thinking that God has rejected him. He's not coming away from his sin, thinking that, that somehow God, has, God hates him or that this, the, the struggles that he's experienced in his life aren't doing anything. He, he pens Psalm 3 and says, no, even though everybody is saying, including Absalom, there is no hope for me in God because of all these bad things I've done, I don't deserve to be delivered. David says, my faith has been restored and I'll call out to the one who makes me righteous. I'll call out to the one who delivers me. He's not cast me off. He'll still hear me, and he'll still come to my aid. And certainly, both physically and spiritually, that was true for David. What else is potentially the discipline or the hardships that we go through as Christians? What are they accomplishing? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, give us another bit of insight to that. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, the Apostle Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul says, Three times I pled with God to deliver me from this painful trial that I was enduring, that it should leave me. 
But he said to me, Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Some of us, we get confused in our hardships, and we think that God is trying to destroy us. He's trying to hurt us, but here what we see in this passage is that we need to boast a little more in our weaknesses, and we need to boast a little more in God's grace, which Paul says that after he's gone through this incredible, painful valley, is saying, I've learned that God's grace for me in this moment and any moment is sufficient. It's enough. And so it's doing something. It's accomplishing something. These hardships and these pains, these difficulties that we face, it's doing something in our lives. That's the second encouragement. And the third is this. The difficulty that you experience is leading to something better. The difficulty that you experience is leading to something better. Remember, we're we're contrasting these ideas that both for the righteous and for the wicked, both for those who have faith in God and those who don't have faith in God, for those who would humble themselves before Jesus' throne and to those who would reject his rule in their life. To all of us, we face difficulties. But for the Christian, we have this promise that the difficulty that we face in this life is leading us to something far better. Again, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, that special chapter that we referenced a moment ago, he says in verse 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth to be comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Christian, do you believe that? The suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, it's telling us all about these people of faith who were given this great promise, this great promise, And many of them died without ever having reprieve or deliverance from the difficulties that they faced. And yet, we have this promise that we are being prepared. Think about Paul. This is a crazy turn of events. In chapter 14, Paul is literally stoned. He... Unless you can't really imagine what's being said there, large rocks that tear rotator cuffs when we try to throw them too fast, they were being hurled at his head and his body. And as he tries to cover up this way and that way, he's unsuccessful. He's knocked unconscious. He's dragged out of the city, left for dead, bleeding out of all over over the parts of his body. And what what, what does he say? Acts 14, 21 to 22, when they had preached the gospel to that city and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. They returned back to the same city and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying all the while that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Think of that. The Apostle Paul, as he's bandaged up, arm in a sling, limping but with a smile on his face, crooked as it may be, probably missing some teeth, he strengthens the hearts of the disciples by saying, I'm not surprised by any of this. Oh, this, this is the way that we enter the kingdom of God. This is all to be expected. This is what God is using in our lives to change us and to shape us and to discipline and to disciple us to be prepared so that we can be prepared for the kingdom of God so that we can enter it. Now, everything that I've shared so far is mainly aimed at the one who is trusting in Jesus. It's to encourage you, and that's, again, the main thrust of this book, of this book, especially chapter 11, is to remind us of though we face difficulties, though we think we have been forgotten at times, God has not forgotten us, and he is working actively at this very moment. But I want you to think, Christian. I want to continue to talk to you, but I want to talk to you in regards to those who do not have faith in Jesus. Now, it's true that as you consider those in this life that are in that category of without faith, they don't believe that God is, and maybe they believe that God is or exists, but they're not yet to the point where they would say, I believe that what God has said in this book is actually his words. They're not ready to believe that yet. I want you to think about when you consider them, Contrast their experience with yours. You are going through sufferings. You are going through difficulties, and yet these people who are not living by faith, they don't have the hope that you have. They don't have the promise that you have. You think about somebody like Rahab. Just to put this in perspective for you, Rahab's greatest treasure and joy up until the point that she encounters these two spies. Her great, the highlight of her existence as a human for all eternity future was that she had been a successful prostitute. So much to the point that she was able to have her own house where she could execute her business. That was the feather in her cap. That was the bright point in her life. Considering all eternity, that's what she had to look forward to until she encountered the God of the Hebrews. And that's true of your neighbors. Think of it. What many in this life consider to be hell is the closest thing to heaven that those who are apart from God will ever experience. They have no hope as they pass through this life. Christian, as you consider the fact that you are struggling, also consider the fact that the struggles that you face are light compared to the struggles that those apart from Christ will face. And they, without any hope of deliverance. That should do something in our hearts. It should stir up pity. It should stir up urgency. It should stir up humility. It should stir up a zeal for evangelism. That the hardest thing that you'll ever experience is the greatest thing that those apart from God will experience. Now, 
I've spent up until this point all of our time speaking to Christians in the room, to those who are looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter of their faith, who are looking to the work of Jesus as what is solely able to make them right with God and to restore that relationship. And now I want to just take a moment. I want to speak to those who have lived their life up until this point apart from God, who have rejected Jesus or not even known of him up until this point, to those who are not walking by faith. There's a scripture I want to give to you this morning. I've referenced it a moment ago. It's Proverbs 13, 15. Proverbs 13, 15. This is what the scripture says. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous, treacherous is their ruin. That's the English standard version. There's another version I think is, is, is helpful too if we could put those next to each other. The New American says, good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous, the treacherous, why is that word so hard? The treacherous is hard. There's a contrast here, and we see it, we've already seen it in chapter 11. So much of the difficulties that you face in this life are a result of you rejecting what God has said and going your own way. So much of the challenges that you've faced is God's wrath upon you being poured out because you have chosen to go this way. It's this idea of the New Testament gives us that, it says that we don't even know what we're stumbling over. We've gone off the path, the lighted path, and that's a very, very difficult path. And perhaps in the difficulties that you face, maybe it's actually God drawing you to himself saying, I'm here to deliver you. Your yoke is, is heavy. It's your burden. It's, it's heavy. It's crushing you. But take my yoke upon you because it's easy and it's light. Walk with me, the Lord is saying to you in your difficulties. Or, or maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you have still rejected religion. Maybe you've rejected the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and you've said, I don't really have any difficulties. Everything's great. Everything's going well. well. There's another proverb that I would give to you, and that's Proverbs 16, verse 25, and it says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That's scary. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. There's a way in this life that seems difficult, but the end is life. Christian, that is our path. That's our lot. And you who would turn away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, consider that though your path in this moment seem easy and light, the end is surely death. Consider the life of Rahab. Again, we have no indication that she lived a hard life. Aside from her job here, again, we can assume that she's successful financially. She's made a name for herself. 
even able to own property, to own her own home. And yet in this moment when she hears about Yahweh, what happens to her heart? Likely the same thing that happened to my heart when I first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it first penetrated my hard heart. And in that moment, she realizes everything's not okay. The path that I'm on right now is the path of death. I love the story of Rahab, the faith that she has in God. She says, no, I believe that Yahweh is. I believe that he exists. And I believe that he will reward me for being obedient. I believe that what he says is true, that this land's not my land, that this land is his land and it's for his people, for those who worship him. And she surrenders to that. Would you do that this morning? It's so interesting. When the walls of Jericho fall, you know the story. When the walls of Jericho fall, what's hanging out her window? It's a scarlet ribbon. What does that symbolize? Does it symbolize her past life? Maybe. Or does it symbolize the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb that cleanses us from sin? The blood of the Lamb that delivered the Israelites by faith. And the blood that delivers this church as well. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I invite you to turn from your sin and to receive the good news of Jesus that you can be delivered. Friends, the the path of faith, yes, it's difficult. But it's not God's judgment on us. It's doing something. It's preparing us for future glory. And the path of unbelief, it's much, much harder And it ends in death, separation eternally from God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us faith in Jesus. You've given us the confidence that we need to call out to your provision who is Jesus. We just give you thanks for that. Father, we see in the New Testament that apart from the God of this universe, our creator and our sustainer, revealing himself, revealing his son, revealing this plan of salvation, apart from that work, we would not have faith. Father, we believe that's true of Rahab. She wouldn't be able to have acted in faith and and landed herself not just in Hebrews 11, but also in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. It wouldn't have happened apart from the work of the Spirit of God softening her heart and giving her faith. God, we pray that right now you would strengthen the faith as you've done for so many before us you'd strengthen the faith of the the saints gathered here this morning. And God, even more than that, we ask, we beg that you would give faith to somebody this morning who before today did not believe that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. This is our hope and this is our prayer. Jesus, we ask all these things in your name.